All right, so as many of you know, we are in a series called Answers, Questioning the Bible. Answers, Questioning the Bible. And this series has to do with you all asking a variety of questions to the pastors, and then us kind of like pulling from different questions and creating sermons out of them. Uh, There was 12 opportunities for sermons in total, and we had way more questions than 12, so we'll be creating uh, a podcast with the questions that don't get changed into sermons. Okay, so I I need to warn all of you about today, okay? So today is one of those topics and sermons that I certainly would not choose for myself to preach on, okay? Uh, If you would ask me, uh, hey, would you like to preach a sermon on hell and judgment and eternal wrath? I would say, no, I don't want to do that. But that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And so, I I just want to, one, warn you that there's going to be some graphic language because uh, some of the descriptions in the Bible are graphic, okay? And there's going to be some disturbing language as well because hell should disturb us, okay? And my aim is not to scare anybody, but we should be scared of hell, okay? Jesus spoke of it in such a way that we should have fear in our hearts that we would do anything possible not to go to this place that Jesus says is real and that is inhabited by real people right now, even as we're sitting here and I'm preaching, okay? So this is a very sobering topic. Uh, again, not, not a topic I would choose to do a message on, but because you asked, uh, we want to be faithful to your questions. And it is a good opportunity to open up the Bible and see what does it have to say about judgment and God's wrath towards sinners, okay? And just on the front end, uh, in case any of you need to leave early, we're all sinners. Okay, so, the, so there's not this paradigm in the Bible where there's good people and there's bad people, and the good people are going to go to heaven, and you know, those bad people, you know, if you're a Democrat, all them Republicans are going to be in hell. And if you're a Republican, you know, hell is populated with, with big D t-shirts, Democrats, right? No, there are no good people. There was one good person, and you know his name if you've been here for any amount of time. His name is Jesus Christ, the only righteous one. And he's the only one actually qualified to judge the living and the dead. And that is his position. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an account for our lives. And some will be separated to eternal punishment, and some will be separated to eternal joy and happiness. And the Bible speaks of these two realities of heaven and hell as real places that will last forever and will be inhabited by people who will also last forever in one of two places. And there is no middle ground. Now, here's the good news, friends, right on the front end. Usually I wait till the end of the sermon. I'm going to give it to you on the front and the end, okay? We can be saved from the wrath of God and from eternal punishment in hell forever by one means. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, aka heaven, but through me. And so we must turn from our sin to Jesus, trust in his substitutionary death on the cross and resurrection, and when we ask him for mercy and forgiveness, we are forgiven all our sins, and we escape the punishment of God. Why? Because the punishment of God fell on Jesus in our place. 
Jesus soaked up all the anger of God on the cross in the place of all those who would ever trust in him, throw themselves upon his mercy, ask for forgiveness, turn from sin, and begin to, by the Holy Spirit's power, live for him. Okay, so that's on the front end. Everyone and anyone who turns from their sin to Jesus can be saved from hell. Isn't that good news? Okay, so let's talk about it. Jesus, out of all the prophets and apostles, spoke of hell more than anyone else. And I would say rightly so, because he is the Lord of hell. Okay? When I was young, I was told that, you know, hell is a place that, is, that where God, it's where God is not. It's a place that we are uh, Christless. How many of you have heard, you don't want to end up in a Christless eternity, do you? Well, that's actually not biblical. One, if you're a good theologian, you know that God inhabits infinite space. There is no place that does not contain God because, as Paul says to the philosophers on Mars Hill, in God we live and move and have our being. Hell itself is upheld by God himself. Without God, hell can't exist. It just makes sense. If God is in his own circle as the source of all things, even hell itself, then everything in this circle, including hell, and the upkeep of it, if you will, is being upkept by God. And there's a text in Revelation we'll look at explicitly that says, sadly, that there are sinners who will be in the presence of the Lamb in hell being tormented, okay? Again, not a topic I would choose to preach on, so thank you for the several of you who asked gives me an opportunity to preach on it. Now, Jesus, again, is the Lord of hell, and so he has authority to speak on it with clarity. And here's, here's my counsel to us. We should listen to Jesus and his warnings. We should not take them as suggestions or opinions or just, oh, that's just hyperbole. You know, everybody goes to heaven. Everyone knows that. Well, if Jesus is who he claims to be, the creator and sustainer of the universe and the judge of all mankind and the one who rules and reigns over hell itself, we should listen what he has to say about it, right? Doesn't that make sense? So here's, here's another way I will ask you to pay attention, okay? If Jesus is who he claims to be, the creator, sustainer, Lord of the universe, ruler of hell, in fact, Revelation says he holds the keys to death and Hades itself. Hades is the Greek uh, idea of the underworld, the world of the dead. He has the keys to get in and out of that place. And without him unlocking the key, no one gets in or out, okay? If Jesus is who he claims to be, we should take what he says about this place with the utmost seriousness. And furthermore, we should take what he says about how to escape it with even more seriousness, right? And so, though I have been, you know, funny for the past couple sermons, at least some of you laughed, okay, uh, I'm not going to be funny in this sermon. I apologize for that, okay? It's, it's a very serious thing, and so it deserves more seriousness, gravitas, if you will. It doesn't deserve jokes. And so, I, my plan is not to crack any, all right? So, though I'm not going to yell at you, I'm not going to, like, you know, breathe fire and brimstone at you. I am, I guess that was kind of like a joke, huh? I am not going to crack jokes, even though I just did, sorry. All right, here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Common teaching, not only in, in first century Judaism, but in the Ten Commandments itself. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And Jesus looks beyond action, beyond mere behavior, and he goes to the heart, to the motives, and he says, this is what matters to God. Motives and intents, the inner person. And then here's his counsel in verse 29, concerning lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, looking with lust, tear it out and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Hey, we'll talk about that word in a minute. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Okay? This word hell is Gehenna, and that's going to be the subject of our message today. The Lexham Survey of Theology defines hell this way. The term hell is an Anglo-Saxon word, possibly of Norris origins. The term originally seems to have been associated with mythological rulers of the Germanic underworld. For this reason, it came to be a word referring to the underworld. Later, hell became the way that the biblical terms Gehenna and often Sheol, the Old Testament word Sheol was the realm of the dead or the abode of the dead, were translated in the King James Version or the, you know, the first modern English translation of the Bible. Following the King James rendering of Gehenna, but leaving Sheol untranslated, the New Testament, following the lead of the LXX, the LXX is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, often translates Sheol with Hades, a term borrowed from Greek mythological underworld. Jesus speaks of hell as real, eternal, and warns those who claim to belong to God not to go there. He warns those who would even say, I belong to God. He warns us, in other words, don't go there. Here in Matthew 10, 26 to 33, Jesus says, speaking of people who can persecute you, harm you, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you, he's speaking to his disciples. What I tell you, in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in, there's our word, hell, Greek Gehenna. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? A Greek Assyrian was a Roman copper coin, or in the Latin, a quadrants, worth about one-sixteenth of a denarius, which was a day's wage for a laborer. So not that much money, right? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Jesus is sovereign even over the death of quote-unquote worthless, sold for a penny, that's the point, birds. And then he says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying here that we will be protected by God and we should not fear those who can kill the body. Why? Because there's one greater who can then take the soul and the body and cast it into Gehenna or hell forever. 
That's who we should fear. In other words, fear God. And the Proverbs speaks of fearing God with, with great encouragement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. And so fearing God is a good thing. Both, we should fear God because he has this authority and power, because he is creator and sustainer, and we are his creation. But then, if he is the moral law, and then we have moral laws based on him as the standard, and then we violate the moral laws, we violate God himself. And so it's like slapping God in the face every time we sin, and especially we being made in his image. And so he has a right to punish us for our sin if he is who he claims to be in the Bible, which Christians believe he is the God of the living and the dead, the creator and sustainer of the universe. What is Gehenna? So let's talk about it. This is the ancient site of child sacrifice to the Canaanite gods, Baal and Moloch. Okay? Baal and Moloch show up in the Old Testament. You remember the land of Canaan is where uh, the Israelites migrated and then were to take over and they were to inhabit. And so the temptation was always to worship the Canaanite gods, to leave Yahweh, we know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to go after the Baal, go after Moloch. And here's the problem with demonic gods. And really, when the Bible uses uh, demons as gods, he uses a small g, that's how English translates it, and they are lower spirit beings who impersonate deities and they are worshiped, usually through human harm, okay? Demon gods demand blood but usually it's the blood of the worshipers. And so you remember Mount Carmel with Elijah and you have the prophets of Baal and they're cutting themselves trying to get Baal's attention, right? And then you have in Moloch, uh, child sacrifice, which we'll read about in just a moment. And so the demon gods would demand human blood. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus says, I don't want your blood. I'll give you mine. We have a God who says, I don't want your blood but you need my blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So how beautiful that we do not have to sacrifice our children or our blood, rather Jesus and the Father, the Father sacrifices his son and Jesus pours out his blood in our place. Now the Old Testament is not a stranger to pronouncing judgment on God's people for worshiping false gods, demon gods. Jeremiah 7, 30 to 34 says this, for the sons of Judah, remember Judah being uh, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the tribes of Israel, uh, and when the kingdoms divided, there was the northern and the southern tribes, and Judah was, was in the south there. The sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name, the temple, to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Note that, valley of the son of Hinnom. To what? To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topeth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. 
and I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. And this is Jeremiah pronouncing judgment for false worship of false gods, and specifically for the sacrifice of their children. Like this is something God is really upset about, to the point where I'm coming in and I'm going to wipe all of you out in judgment. Okay, and we know he did that through Babylon. Babylon comes in and just wipes out, murders tons of people, takes people captive, and and God does that for judgment, and he has the right to do so. Now, Hell on Earth is an essay by author Edwin Black, and as I've read this, I think it's helpful because it gives some modern idea to this real place that is mentioned here called the Valley of Hinnom, or the Son of Hinnom, uh, in the New Testament called Gehenna. It's the same place, okay? It's this site where babies were sacrificed to the demon gods Baal and Moloch. So Edwin Black in this essay, Hell on Earth, writes this. Below the old city walls in Jerusalem, there is a ravine that begins as a gentle, grassy separation between hills, then quickly descends south into the rocky earth. Eventually, the ravine becomes a steep, craggy depth, scarred on its far side by shallowed caves and pits pocked by hollowed-out chambers and narrow crypts. Everywhere you see scorches and smolder from trash fires. Rivulets of urine trickle down from open sewers at the cliffs above, watering thorn bushes, weeds, and unexpected clumps of grass among the outcroppings. You smell the stench of decaying offal, O-F-F-A-L, that's animal insides. The the congealed stench of putrefied garbage and the absorbed reek of incinerated substances seared into the rock face. Crows circle low, worms and maggots slither throughout. Listen, imagine. Some cannot help but hear the tormented screams of babies being burned alive. The macabre incantations of the idolatrous in gruesome celebration, the agonized cries of helpless victims, and so many echoes of death and disconsolation that dwell here so pervasively, not even the centuries can silence them. Welcome to hell. Some say the real hell or at least one of the central prototypes for our modern concept of this horrific place. We'll come back to that essay in a minute, but I want to read you more from Jeremiah. They have turned to, they have turned to me their back and not their face, God's people. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They build high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Because the people have forsaken me, Jeremiah 19, 4-6, and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, notice the children are called innocence, 
and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Edwin Black continues in his essay. As land that defies political peace, this is the only part of the valley that Arabs cannot improve and that Jews dare not. Therefore, little has changed here for centuries. Still visible are the original deep angular cuts into the flat scorched stone that held the infamous Tophet, pagan altars created hundreds of years before Christ. Tophet altars are said to be named for their noisy drum that devotees of the mysterious dark god Moloch would beat to drown out the ghastly cries of children immolated in sacrifice in front of their own willing parents. In the black rapture of their faith, mothers and fathers not only witnessed the sacrifice, but glorified in the act. Beneath the ancient Tophet altars, one can still see foreboding square entries, barely big enough for a human torso to squeeze through. Within those depths lay a complex of carved out crypts, as well as chambers for ritual preparation for the sacrificial victims. Little is known about Moloch. Some archaeologists speculate that Mol the Moloch idol in Guy Ben Hinnom was, now listen to this, was equipped with outstretched, cantilevered arms that extended a platform upon which the innocent baby was tied. Slowly, the platform would swivel towards the consuming flames as the baby shrieked in helpless agony. No wonder this most hideous place is the focus of so much biblical wrath. He def and now he's going to quote 2 Kings 23.10. He defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so that no one would make a son or daughter pass through the fire as an offering to Moloch. He was speaking of uh, King Josiah's jo reforms. Jesus picks up on this place. It was a real place. Jesus probably visited it. They knew of it well. It was the place outside Jerusalem where the garbage was dumped and burned and where human sewage was also dumped and burned. And so Jesus uses this place as his image, his favorite image for hell. Okay, not good. Not a good place. Not a place you want to go. Jesus in Matthew 13, 47 to 50 says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. You know, the ancient uh, way of fishing and, and still done in some place, a big old net with weights on it would come down and whatever that net would catch, you would pull it in and you would find all kinds of things, some good for eating, some bad for eating. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth is a way to describe this place, okay? You're alive, your conscience, your conscious rather, and you are weeping, and you can gnash teeth for various reasons. How many of you have ever winced in pain, right? Or you're angry, 
right? Anger will make your teeth clench. Or you're nervous, right? How many of you, you know, you find your jaw tensing when you're nervous? Okay? There's all kind of reasons you would gnash your teeth, but none of them are usually good. Right? Like, like you're eating a great steak and you just gnash your teeth and begin to weep. That was a joke. I'm sorry I said I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> you, you, you weep and gnash your teeth when bad things are happening. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, you do not want to go to this place. There will not be fun being heard, joy. The songs will not be ones of joy. No, it will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You do not want to go there. Here's another place where Jesus talks of this place. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is the end of the age, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Now, the Son of Man is taken from Daniel chapter 7. That's uh, Jesus' favorite title for Himself, and it speaks of one whom the Father gives to this Son of Man the nations and the earth and all peoples as his inheritance, and he is to rule over them. And so when he claims this title for himself in Daniel chapter 7, he's saying, I am the one who will rule over all mankind forever. And he's saying, the angels will come with me when I return, and I will sit on my glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now notice the grounds he gives here for entering heaven. I love this. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, what Jesus is not laying out here is a Pauline soteriology, meaning Paul is laying out clearly in Romans 1 through 16 the clear steps of the gospel. Sin, all are, all are sinners, none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3, no one seeks after God, but, you know, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is Jesus. And then he starts into sanctification uh, in 6 and then 7, 8. And that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And so what Jesus is imagining, listen, friends, is if you are born again, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will be doing things like this. This is what James meant when he said, you believe? Great. Even the demons believe and tremble. James says, faith without works is dead. Meaning, words alone, your claim, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, your claim will be backed up by your works. That's what James means. And so when James says, faith without works is dead, we can say we believe all we want, but we need to see some life change. 
We need to see some doing good for others because Jesus sees when we do good to others, it's like we're doing good to him. And if we live a selfish, self-centered, it's all about me and, you know, life is short and so I got to get mine and we have no regard for others and we do no good to others, friends, your faith might not be the real thing. And so you should check yourself. Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Jesus gives these graphic warnings, one, to warn us, don't go to this place. Two, don't be deceived. The the, the Jewish people thought in the first century, because they were children of Abraham, they were safe. The rabbis would teach that Abraham stands outside the gates of Gehenna or Hell or Sheol and does not let any circumcised male to enter in. That's why John the Baptist will say something like, don't say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Right? Because he's like, look, the axe is already at the root. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? And and the religious leaders are like, hey, we're good. We got Abraham. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't say to yourself as a safety blanket, Abraham's our father. No, he says, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that look like? Well, it looks like if someone's hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them drink. If they're a stranger, you welcome them in. If they're naked, you clothe them. That's what it looks like. Now, that's just a way of Jesus saying you do good in the world. Friends, you certainly should not do evil in the world. If you're one who is plotting evil things, you're out thieving and and manipulating and doing harm to others for your benefit, you should be very afraid. You should not deceive yourself into thinking you're, you're right with God because Christians do not live like that. No amount of good deeds will get you into heaven, but no good deeds plus a claim, I belong to Jesus, will also not get you into heaven. What do you mean by that, Chris? You sound like you're saying we're saved by works. No, what I'm saying is faith without works is dead. And so this is how it's said clearly. Listen to me. As a theologian, I'm going to say this very clearly. We're saved by grace alone. We're saved by faith alone. But we're not saved by a faith that remains alone. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. And then the very next thing that happens is you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to bear fruit in you such that your life changes. He gives you the gift of repentance. You begin to turn from the things that are dark and God hates, and you begin to love the things that God loves. And then you have some inner pull to turn from the sin that so easily entangles you, and you actually feel guilty when you sin against God. And you're like, I can't keep doing this. God, help me. You you reach out to other Christians. You say, I need help. That is a great evidence that the Holy Spirit's working in you. But friends, if you're sitting here tonight and you can sin without any little prick on your conscience, that is not a good sign. And I would want to warn you, examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. Because what is the end of your claimed faith without having the real thing? is what Jesus is warning about. Hell, punishment. Friends, someone's gotta pay for your sins. Either you're gonna pay for them forever, or Jesus is gonna pay for them on the cross. And I implore you, make Jesus the sin bearer. You do not wanna pay for your sins for eternity. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, let's look at the goats. 
Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, we could nuance 41. It does say that hell was actually prepared not for people, but for the devil and angels. Now, I want to I correct some bad Catholic theology and bad Catholic art from uh, the Middle Ages. Hell will not be ruled over by Satan and demons, and they will not have, as I've seen art, you know, humans bathing in liquid lava and demons with pitchforks, like poking them back in when they try to escape. No, demons and Satan are going to be getting it worse than humans. That's the deal. Okay? Don't imagine that, that Satan gets to rule over hell. You know, he's sitting on some fiery throne and he's got this, this staff and human beings are brought before him and he's sent to, No, Satan's getting it worse than any other being in the universe because he is the embodiment of evil itself. And so if anyone deserves eternal judgment in fire, and fire's, I believe, metaphoric, and so we'll get here eventually, uh, it's Satan and demons. Okay. It was prepared, eternal fire, notice the eternal, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, many of you know that this church is called Eternal City Church for a reason. It wasn't just a cool name that we thought up. We want you to be thinking of that eternal city called the New Jerusalem, Hebrews 11.10, in which righteousness dwells, in which there is no shadowy beings and glorified human beings. And we will live in purity and glory and bliss forever. And so the idea is we want you to live for this city and the people here in light of that eternal city. That's what Jesus is talking about. We love and serve fellow human beings, Christians. In fact, Paul would say to Timothy this way, do good to all, especially the household of faith. So, well, who should I do good to? Who is my neighbor, right? The one who wanted to justify himself asked Jesus, everyone is deserving of your aiming good at them, but especially those of the household of faith. That's what, that's what Peter would, or, uh, Paul would say. Now, I want to get nuanced here, okay? No one has the time or resources to meet all the needs of all the people everywhere. And so if you have a very um, sensitive conscience, I'm not saying that you should go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and live on the street and beg other people for money. Don't do that because then you're not good to anyone else and you're taking from others, okay? Now, there are people with, with strange circumstances and mental illnesses, and, and they need our help, okay? And, and Eternal City goes at least once a month to try to help those people on uh, the fourth Friday of every, every month, okay? But the idea here is we are responsible for ourselves first, then our families, then other people who God would bring into our path, and friends, if you continue to close the door on people with needs, I would just warn you, that might not be a good idea because you're not probably evidencing that you have a heart changed by God. 
If every need that comes your way, you're like, nope, I ain't got time for that. I ain't got time for that. I ain't got time for that. I don't got money for that. Yo, you know, and you're just making all these excuses. You're living a life to glorify yourself and to, and to pad yourself. Friends, that's not evidence of being born again. Now, God might use this message today as a means of sustaining grace that some of you might change. There's always room for repentance. Repentance just means to turn and change. Okay? So, so let's keep going because I'm running out of time. Before we get to Isaiah, I want to continue to read Edwin Black. Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnon, had a lot going for it in the hellish department. He, he's a good writer. It had already been singled out as an abomination involving the sins of human sacrifice, torture by fire, and eternal dishonor for the dead. Hinnom's ghastly child sacrifice was only halted in the 7th century BC when Josiah overran the valley and desecrated its altars with bones. Eventually, part of Gi bin Hinnom became a dump with constant day and night burning of trash fires emitting a sulfurous stench. Another portion of the ravine became a cesspool receiving the sewage of Jerusalem. Indeed, Essenes and other holy men, believing Jerusalem too holy for defecation, fastidiously carried their dung out past the city walls where they channeled it down into the valley. What's more, Hinnom was the final resting place for those shamed in death. Proper burial was vital under Judaic law, both, for both to combat and, I'm sorry, both to combat the necromancy, you know, necromancing, uh, necro meaning dead, the fascination with the dead, doing rituals with the dead, and even worse things with the dead. Um, the dishonored and unclean were not entitled to a proper Jewish burial within the city. Dishonored corpses were disposed of in the reviled valley of Hinnon. Those without family to make arrangements were interred in the potter's field, a place where potters worked, situated at one end of the valley. The original term, the potter's field, for a burial ground for the lowly. According to Greek Orthodox tradition, the valley at Ben Hinnom even figures in the ultimate act of evil. Judas dejectedly relinquished to the priest the 30 pieces of silver he received for his burial of, or betrayal of Jesus, blood money used to purchase a tract of land that later became the covenant of Saint Onuphorus, which today straddles a cliff above the deepest stretch of Gehenna. The abbey's toilets flush into a crude pipe that regularly drizzles into the valley below. No wonder Hinnom Ravine became off-limits to all but the unpure. No wonder Gehenna was a symbol of damnation. No wonder in Matthew, many references to the defilement and torment to hell, um, the word used is actually Gehenna. Okay, so this is a real place you can go to, to get today. You go to visit Jerusalem, go see the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. Here's Isaiah. This is the last verses of Isaiah. Isaiah closes with this. And if you read Isaiah, it's kind of a rough book. A lot of judgment, but there's a lot of gospel in there too. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Verse 24. 
And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The idea of Gehenna is, it was a trash dump. And so, how many of you have pets that go to the bathroom outside? Okay. And, and, and so, immediately, flies and worms, I know it's gross, but we're talking about hell. Flies and worms and maggots, just, they, 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 they're attracted to waste and garbage and trash. And so, this is, this is what's being pictured here. A place where there's trash and there's maggots and there's worms and there's, you know, birds that eat the dead, the vultures and the crows. Not a good image. Now, I will say, I believe that much of this is metaphoric. Why, why do you think that? You don't think this is literal? No, because Gehenna is a real place and it's a picture or a metaphor for hell. Okay? Fire is often used in the Old Testament as an image for judgment. Okay? So is hell a real place? I think it is. Is it a place that we see in, in you know, video games and Catholic art that's just liquid lava and people are just melting in the flames forever? I don't think it's going to be like that. I think that's imagery used to show you this is not a place you want to live out your eternity. Okay? There's two views, actually. There's the passive view, which says uh, C.S. Lewis did a great job on the passive view with The Great Divorce. How many of you read The Great Divorce? Okay, one, two, three. That's all. Okay, we don't have it in the bookstore, but it's, it's an old classic, so you can get it anywhere for probably pennies. And I guarantee the audio version is on Hoopla, so there you go. Now, in The Great Divorce, hell is pictured as the gray town, and it never quite gets out of that gray twilight zone, and it's raining. And the people are left in their grumpy, angry, hellish state, and, and they live there. But they're taking a bus to the outskirts of heaven in the book. And so they're, they're ghosts. That's how C.S. Lewis pictures them. And when they get to the outskirts of heaven, glorified human beings come out from heaven to try to meet them, to convince them to come into heaven. And as uh, the, the ghosts are being, if you will, implored, please turn and come into this glorious place. They have all these excuses and they have all these reasons why they don't want to come and why it won't be a great place. And it's a fascinating book. And what C.S. Lewis pictures for some is their sins that they will not repent from now are allowed to continue out for all eternity. One, one of the, the sins he pictures is, is the sin of grumbling. Now, I'm, I'm guilty of grumbling, so, so I'm telling on myself here. I need to repent. Okay? What's grumbling? Grumbling is when something doesn't go your way, like today when I, when I just got my two slices of pizza out of the oven, and it was that pan that has the little holes in the bottom, so the bottom gets cooked real nice and crispy, as well as the cheese on the top. And I put them outside, and my big 150-pound Great Pyrenees said, my lunch. And I want to strangle his big neck, right? It would look like this, you know, wrestling a polar bear. That's what it would look like. And so what do I do? I start complaining under my breath, like, my pizza. And, and it's barely hearable. If, if you were like, you know, six feet away, you'd be like, what'd you say? What are you talking about me? You know, you, you would just hear this low murmur, this complaining grumble. How many of you do that? Right? First thing you do in the morning, stinking alarm clock, got to go to bed. You know, my boss didn't wake up in the morning. And you're just grumble, grumble, grumble. So, right, it's a sin and we do need to repent. 
Rejoice always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. There he has Paul in Philippians. You're like, shut up, Paul. <laughs> shut up, Paul. Who gives you the authority to tell me to rejoice? He's like, Jesus, suck. <laughs> All right. I said I wasn't going to joke. I'm sorry. I can't help it. So, so the idea is this in Lewis. The grumble is allowed to continue for millennia unchecked. And then he says the final state of that person is indistinguishable from the grumble itself. Man, that's scary. So how many of you know angry people that have only gotten angrier as the years have gone? Imagine that allowed to continue for thousands and millions of years. You would be like a demon. I'm just getting more bitter, more angry, more resentful, more wanting to just be murderous. And where do you live? With all the other sinners forever in this place called Gehenna or hell. Man, that, so the passive view is attractive to me because man, would that be hell in and of itself, wouldn't it? Like living in a place with no righteous people, no good people are here, only bad. And then the evil is allowed to continue. God just allows your pet sins to continue to grow. And you live in that world for eternity. That sounds terrible. Like, we don't even need God to throw us into a lake of fire and, and, you know, hit us with demonic pitchforks. Like, that would be terrible enough. The active view, so, so there's the passive view, God allows you in your sin to just continue. And, and I, would, I, would, I would argue for that in some sense because that's the way you see it in the epistles and in Romans. People are allowed to go their own way, and it's, it's the passive wrath of God. Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, God gave them over to this desire. He gave them over to that desire. Okay, so the active view is Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story? Right, the, the, the sinners were so angering of God that he literally in some way brought down fire and brimstone from the heavens and wiped out every single person in those cities. That's the active wrath of God. Okay, now could it be a mixture of both? It could. And here's, here's some gospel good news, okay? For those who repent and turn to Jesus in faith, friends, we're not going to experience the passive, passive wrath or the active wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus on the cross soaked up all our wrath. Isn't that good news? And that is available for anyone and everyone who will turn to the mercy and grace of God in Jesus. That's the good news we have to tell. And so we tell it. Okay? But God's judgment is so precise I don't have the text to put up on the screen, but it's easily found in the Gospels. Jesus talks about the cities where he did many of his miracles, and then he pronounces judgment on them, and he says, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin. For if, now listen to this, it's an if, which means he's using logic and argument. If the miracles that were performed in you were performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have remained to this day. Therefore, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Man. So, so what Jesus is saying is, not only does he know what would have been under different circumstances, but he's also going to judge in light of that. Right? Because, because he goes right to judgment. He says, therefore, it will be more tolerable. In other words, they're going to get less punishment. Remember the cities that got the active wrath of God poured on them? 
It'll be more tolerable for them than it will be for you. What, what you? The cities that Jesus was physically there doing his miracles, showing himself to be the Lord of glory. They're going to get judged worse than Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day. That shows levels and degrees of punishment in hell. Not everyone will get the same sentence, if you will. But not only that, listen, friends, listen to this. Jesus is going to take into account what would have been under all circumstances. So no one will have any excuse. Jesus, if you'd have just gave me different parents. No, this is what that would have looked like. Jesus, if you'd have just let me been born in Washington, D.C. instead of Pittsburgh. No, this is what that would have looked like. Jesus is all-knowing, and so therefore he takes all possible could-bes into consideration when he's judging. That's amazing. But that's what he said. If the miracles that were... So, so in other words, Jesus somehow played out him in Sodom and Gomorrah doing the miracles, and he saw that they would have repented. That's what he said. God can do that. We can't. And so he takes that into consideration with judgment. That's amazing. There's a parable that Jesus tells of of a servant uh, being given charge over other servants, and he's actually telling it to the apostles. And uh, he's going away for a while, and he says, The servants should treat, I'm paraphrasing, treat the other servants well. But if the master comes home and he finds out that the servants have been abusing the master's goods and people, it's going to go bad for them. And he says it like this, for the one who knew his master's will and did not do it will be beaten with many blows. But the one who didn't know his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with fewer blows. That's degrees of punishment. And so, you, you think of uh, Dante's Inferno and the, and the levels of hell. There's probably something to that, okay? Now, he thought about it, you know, like a, like a skyscraper in an elevator, but we, we have no idea what the dimension of hell is going to look like. But there will be degrees of punishment and different, I think, worlds within hell for different people. Again, that's my imagination. Okay, let's end with this. Okay, I got, I got way too much here. Whoa, all right, sorry guys. I'll, I'll end with some gospel hope, but I want to finish a portion of, uh, of this, this essay. Edwin Black, I'm imagining he took this journey because he describes it like he, he took it himself. Okay, so listen to this. Again, Edwin Black, his essay, the uh, Hell, he says this. It turns out it's not easy to get to the uttermost depths of hell. And he's talking about Gehenna. No Jewish taxi will drive there because strangers and Israelis are frequently stoned by embittered villagers. So hire an Arab taxi to drive down a service ramp, then along the, then along the filthy trek that is Gehenna, even the Arab driver will resist, pay extra. When the taxi can proceed no further down, get out and scramble up a short rocky ridge, two scruffy Arab boys across the way may jeer, wagging their fingers and shouting warnings to turn back, disregard them, and walk to the edge of the cliff face. There you'll find a great cave, its arched entrance guarded by six-foot-high thorn bushes, impenetrable, urine from the unsewered toilet in the covenant above, the, uh, the covenant above, the very covenant that legend claims to be founded with Jesus' blood money trickles from its open pipe down 
the, the escarpment and over the cave's entrance. Feces from man and beast lie everywhere. Rodents and dark snakes slither. Here is the lowest point of Guy Ben Hinnom, the absolute pit. On either side of the cave's entrance, hung from spikes driven into the rock, are twine strangled jackals, angry snarls frozen in death. Who wants to go there on their next vacation? Not me. Right? And this is the place, the very place that Jesus used when he was talking about hell. Now, this is a modern depiction of it. But in Jesus' day, it was, it was the eternally, if you will, burning trash heap of Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to skip the Revelation verse, and I'm going to answer the two questions that were asked. Here's the first question. Why would a lifetime of sin warrant eternal punishment? Why would a lifetime of sin warrant eternal punishment? Psalm 51, 1 to 4. David is finally repentant from his sin with Bathsheba. He is convicted. He writes a song to the Lord, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Look at verse 4. You ready? Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So the answer to the question, why would a lifetime of sin warrant eternal punishment, is because every sin we commit, though it is committed on a horizontal level against other people, every sin is committed against God. And listen, God is the standard of right and wrong. Without God himself, his character, his person, we have no such thing as right and wrong, just and unjust, good and bad, right? So as, as, the, as the argument goes, how do you define right and wrong without some kind of law? And how can you have authority for a law without some kind of lawgiver? And so the existence of morality itself ultimately points to the ultimate morality. God himself, who says, this is bad and this is good. This is evil and this is good. And if you do evil, there will be an eternal reckoning. Now, our culture is obsessed with justice at the moment. And it's a, it's a twisted justice, for sure. But listen, I want to say to you out there who are obsessed with justice, friends, no one's getting away with anything. And that's why hell is good news for those who love justice. Friends, any wrong that's been done to you will be righted either by Jesus on the cross if they were a Christian or they're going to pay for that very sin forever in hell. And so every wrong ever done against you will either be met with God's wrath on the cross and Jesus soaks it up in place of another brother and sister or, friends, that wrong will be punished in hell. Now, friends, flip that on yourself. 
How many times have you sinned against other people? Many, many, many times. And friends, this is the sad reality. For God, it's not just what we do, it's what we don't do. When we fail to do what is right, when we have opportunity, that's also a sin. Right? I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I didn't do anything wrong. No, you didn't come see me. You didn't feed me. You didn't give me something to drink. So when we fail to do the things we should do, that's also a sin. Now, friends, here's the good news. Jesus pays the price for all our sin. And justice, this is the good news for us. Justice will ultimately be served. Isn't that good news? that no one gets away with anything. And the way that's good news for us is because justice has been served in our place. Because the judge, Jesus, was judged in our place. And so when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all our sin is ultimately against him. And he says to us, I have taken away all your sin. That's what Christians are gonna hear. I have taken away all your sin. There is no punishment left for you. I stood in the place of justice and I took your punishment. You deserved it. I didn't, but I took it. And there's none left for you. And so why does a lifetime of sin warrant eternal punishment? Because of who it's against. The creator and sustainer of the universe. Now listen, if I punched you in the face, any of you, which I won't, but if I did, I might get in some trouble. What if I punched Joe Biden in the face? You think I'd get in a little more trouble? Probably. I'd probably get in trouble for punching one of his secret service men. Okay? Imagine punching God in the face. That's why eternal punishment is warranted, because of who he is and who the sin is against. Not only is he the creator of you, but he's the sustainer of you. He's the giver of all your gifts. He's the giver of your very breath. And the sad reality is we live in a secular culture that that makes us think that we are self-sufficient and everything that we have is originated in us and because of what we've done and how hard we've worked. And it's all God, friends. And so him as the giver of all things, even life itself, the natural logical implication is we would live for him. But instead, you know what most people do when they think about the God of the Bible? They either one stiff arm him or worse, they middle finger him. Hell is right. One more question, then we're done. If I repent of sin, will I still be punished for it and stand before God and answer for it? It's a good question. Let me read it again. If I repent from sin, will I still be punished for it and stand before God to answer for it? Okay, so eternally, the answer is no. If you repent from sin, you will not be eternally punished for that sin. However, oftentimes when we sin, God allows the consequences of those sin to land on you. And sometimes they land on you for the rest of your life. And I'm sure all of us could tell stories of the sins we've committed that we're still paying for, and it's 25, 30, you know, plus years later. And we're going to keep paying for it because we've sinned and there's consequences to our sin in this life, in this life as Christians. Okay? 
But there's hope. And so when Peter was preaching a sermon at Pentecost and he blamed the crowd for the death of Jesus, they were cut to the heart and they were pricked in conscience by the Holy Spirit. And they said, what, what should we do? What does Peter say in 38? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, your children, and all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Okay? So the idea there is if we repent, that, so what is repentance? It is to turn the other way. Literally, that's what it means. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You turn from sin and turn to God. If you're saying, I'm sorry for this sin I've committed, you can't at the same time hold on to it and say, I still want it. You release yourself from the sin. Here's darkness, which is deserving of hell. You turn from that sin and you go the other way, which is towards God. That's repentance. You put it down, you leave it down, and you turn the other way and you go towards God. Now, are we tempted to turn back around and go after it and pick it back up all the time? And so what do you do? You keep repenting. You keep turning from it. You ask God for help. But here's the good news. Many texts in the Bible talk about, for Christians, our sins being removed from us. And so here is Psalm 103, 8 to 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Listen to this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that beautiful? How far is the east from the west? Come on, tell me. This just keeps going. It's, it's infinite theoretically, right? The, the arrow just keeps going out, 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 out. How far does our sin get removed from us? Infinitely removed from us. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. One last text of encouragement and we're done. Okay. John 10, Jesus is calling himself the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is probably the most famous psalm in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, you know it. And so Jesus says, I am that good shepherd. And here's what he says. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. So listen, God is claiming here that he knows his people. Think, okay, think about this. Everyone knows who Dwayne Johnson is, okay? Let's say Dwayne Johnson walked in the room right now, walked through there. Everyone would be like, yo, and some of us might be so bold as to rush up and be, you know, try to grab a selfie with him. And you'd be like, I know who you are, you're Dwayne. But imagine if, if Dwayne walked in and was like, yo, Evan, my bro, what's up? We'd be like, what? Right? We, we'd be like, what in the world? How do you know the, the rock? Well, look, look, Jesus says, I know my sheep. 
Do you see how much greater that is for you to say, I know God, than for him to say, I know you? And that's amazing. God says he knows all of his sheep and more intimately than we know ourselves. And here's the promise, friends. So whoever asked that question, here's the promise. I give them eternal life. That's life that never ends. That's the opposite of eternal punishment. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I would say, not even yourself. Like, once God's got you in his grip, you can't even pry his fingers off of you. That's good news. I mean, that's what he says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You say, I can snatch myself out of his hand. Who are you? You're a human being. No, if God wants you, he's going to keep you. And even you can't get away from him. My father who has given them to me, who? My sheep from verse 27. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. There's no one above God the Father. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. One in authority, one in power, equal in essence, separate in person, the Trinity. Okay? And so here the promise is, friends, for those who are in Christ, we are safe. We are secure. We are resting in Christ. And so, friends, if worship songs are troublesome to you, and I've talked to some people and they are, this is the logic you need to to coach yourself. I have been saved from eternity in hell because Jesus took my place as a substitute. The least I can do is use my voice and sing to him for that. And you say, I can't sing. I'll say, I can't sing either. So what? Is that going to be an excuse? Jesus, I can't sing, so I just can't. You know, I just can't praise you. That's terrible. And this is not a question about worship. So if someone wants to do that one, ask. There's still a few slots open. Okay? But, but the encouragement here is the least we could do in light of what we've heard today is live for him and worship him. Amen? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion right now as an act of worship, remembering Jesus' body broken and bloodshed. Listen, what Jesus did, he, in, in, in a sense, took hell for us. He took God's wrath for us. He descended into the wrath of God, and it swallowed him whole. But the good news is he didn't stay there, did he? The third day he rose again triumphant, beating Satan's sin and death and liberating us from the punishment of eternal hell. And friends, we have a lot to celebrate. So I know you have bad days, and I know some of your days go really bad. Remind yourself of how much worse it could be. <laughs> like at minimum, you could do that, right? Like, man, it could be way worse. I could be in hell right now, and I deserve to be. Notice that last part, and I deserve to be. Because you do, and so do I. All right, I love you guys. This is not an easy message. Thank you for sticking it in there. And, um, you know, if you want to go further on it, I'm happy to talk with you and, and offer some resources. But let us now worship God for his saving us from eternal punishment by descending into that himself and coming out triumphant. So if you could stand, we're going to sing together. We're going to take communion. 
and then I'll come back out um, after the song and I'll lead us all in, in taking communion together.